Well, like Abby said, uh, today's the first Sunday in Lent, and uh, with that being the first Sunday in Lent, we're starting our uh, a new sermon series that will be in throughout this season called Deep Calls to Deep. Um, this comes uh, in reference from uh, Psalm 42, where we get this sense that um, the, the psalmist is in a, a moment of like desperation of sorts, and um, the psalmist uses this language of deep calls to deep. And I, I love that language, and it's really actually kind of hard to describe, but you hear it, and it's one of those phrases where you're like, I, I think I get that, right? Like there's a, a deepness within us that's longing to connect in some way to a deepness of something else. Um, whether that deepness is God's very self, right? The deepness within us calling out to the deepness of God, the deepness of us calling out to this invitation of this life that God invites us into, the deepness of like maybe even our own self, of like coming in touch with who we are and who God's created us to be in this life that we get to live. Now, this seems like a really fitting um, theme to to be following throughout the season of Lent because in some ways that's what Lent is, right? It's an invitation into um, uh, a deepen, deepen, deepering uh, understanding of God, of ourself, and the life that we're being invited into um, as we journey with Jesus uh, heading closer and closer to the cross uh, and then ultimately the resurrection, right? So uh, throughout this series, we're going to be looking at these different themes as we follow the life of Jesus and reflecting on the ways that we're being invited into a a deeper understanding of who God is, a deeper relationship with this life that God is inviting us into, and even a deeper understanding of ourself. So as we get ready to do that, uh, let's pause for a word of prayer. Loving God, we are grateful uh, for this chance to be together today. Uh, We're grateful for uh, Zoom and the gift of technology, um, that as we continue to find ourselves in the season of of being in our own homes for worship, that we can be together. God, we give you thanks for the great mystery that is your spirit, um, that your spirit uh, meets us in all of our homes and and in some mysterious way unites us and connects us together. God, we give you thanks for the scriptures now as we turn to them, and we recognize your spirit among us that's uniting us, that's connecting us, and now we ask that your spirit would would lead us and guide us and shape us and form us as we wrestle wrestle with the scriptures and trust that we're being shaped and formed into the image of Jesus throughout it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever thought about what causes you to do what you do? like your, your motivation or um, what provokes you to, to be about the things that you're about. Uh, it's this question of why do you do what you do? Yeah. Whether that be in your personal life or your professional life. Why do you do what you do? Now, I would bet that for most of us, uh, one of the first answers that we might give is like, I want to do good, right? And that's great. Like, I, I know most of us, like, we we are all good people and we all really want to see good happen in the world. But I also think that this response to this question of I want to do good uh, can sit at a bit of like a cliche sort of level, right? And I think if we're even honest that this response of I want to do good can be almost be like a defense mechanism of like, I just want to say I'm doing good. Like really like don't come and like peel back the layers and start rummaging around in there because I don't know what we'll find 
uh, lying as the motivation for why I do what I do. And yet, uh, I think that this is a really valid question and a really important question and a question that um, maybe seems especially fitting in this particular season that we find ourselves uh, in of Lent. So why do you do what you do? Um, so maybe you're married and uh, you've uh, really committed to being a really loving and selfless uh, partner. And so you ask the question of why do you do what you do? And as you begin to peel back the layers, maybe you recognize that um, your own mother or your own father was uh, a really selfless and loving uh, partner. And their example uh, is like this... Um, this pressure almost on you uh, to live out uh, a married life in this sort of way. Uh, or maybe you're a parent and you ask the question of why do you do what you do? And as you begin to peel back the layers, um, you begin to realize that maybe uh, you didn't have the greatest childhood. And as you think about uh, your own parents, there were maybe lots of ways that they fell short of what you had hoped for and what maybe even you needed as a child. And so as a result, like, uh, you do like double duty as a parent, right? You make sure that uh, to the fullest extent of your possibilities, like your child is going to have the life that you always wanted. Uh, maybe you're an employee somewhere, right? And uh, you, you've become like the go-to employee. Whenever your boss has a, has a task, they, they come to you and they hand it to you because they know that you're going to exceed expectations. But you begin to ask the question of why do you do what you do? As you peel back the layers, maybe you recognize that at your, your previous place of employment, you felt really underappreciated or undervalued. Or maybe you felt like you're leaving from that organization, um, like you kind of got burned in the process. And so um, you do whatever it takes to like make sure that they know what they lost when you left. Uh, or lastly, uh, maybe you're committed to some sort of cause, like some sort of social justice initiative to bring about some sort of uh, social equity in the world around us. But as you begin to ask this question of why do you do what you do and peel back the layers, maybe you recognize that everybody else in your, your community, everybody else in your circle cares about these things, right? And you feel like you need to live out X, Y, or Z or care about X, Y, or Z in order to fit in in some way. Now this question of why do you do what you do, like it's a, it's a really scary, uncomfortable, and disorienting question, isn't it? <laughs> Um, it's not one that like, you know, I freely want to venture into, right? And so like, as I ask it, I offer no judgment because I guarantee if I started peeling back the layers, we'd find some not so like uh, whole <laughs> motivations behind some of the things that I do. And yet, I think it's a really relevant and important question because we recognize that there's lots of things that are motivating us whether that be pride, whether that be uh, spite, whether that be um, popularity, whether that be um, power. And yet this question is really important because we also recognize that um, while there's lots of motivations, we recognize that um, whatever the motivation is behind the thing that we do in our life, the thing that we do will carry with it the same sort of energy that motivated us in the first place. So meaning like we could be committed to a life of doing really, really good and great things, but if the motivation behind it is spite for the other side and the things that they're not doing, then all that good that we're doing in the world will carry with it just a bit of spite within it. 
Whatever we do in our life, we recognize that it will carry with it the same sort of energy that motivated us to do it in the first place. And so uh, I think this is part of the reason why three of our Gospels begin with a very specific story of a voice coming from God being spoken over Jesus at the very beginning of his public life and work and ministry. So the story uh, comes in our three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, But this morning we're going to be looking at Mark's account of it. So this comes from Mark chapter 1. Now again, like this comes at the very beginning of Jesus' public life and work and ministry. And so we're told in Mark 1 verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. So again, this story comes before Jesus uh, has really stepped into his public life and work and ministry. And yet at this very point in Jesus's life, he hears this, this, this pronouncement from the heavens that you are my son, the beloved. Now, for like the fourth time, this comes before Jesus has done anything, right? (laughs) This comes at the very, very beginning of his public work, life, and ministry. Jesus hasn't done anything up to this point. And we, we know, like if we know the story of Jesus well, we know that Jesus will go on to do really good, really great, really important, cosmic shaping sorts of things. And yet, this moment comes before he's done any of that. Before he's done any of these good and great and important and cosmic shaping things, there comes this voice that speaks to him and says, you are beloved. Now, one of the the interesting things that happens uh, throughout the course of the Gospels as they unfold and throughout the the course of the New Testament as it unfolds is there, there comes this reflection that Jesus holds like these two natures together. On the one hand, Jesus is fully God. And so if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. Because Jesus is like the clearest image of God that we have. But on the other hand, there's also this realization that that Jesus is like the fullest and most complete image of what it means to be human, too. And so if we want to know what it means for us to be us, for you to be you, for me to be me, for us in this collective experience of humanity, like we can look to Jesus to get our cues about what that means. And so we have this story where we see this inherent belovedness within Jesus. We see that Jesus, uh, when it comes to his own belovedness, that, that there's nothing that Jesus has to do to like earn that belovedness or prove that belovedness or achieve that belovedness. But rather, when it comes to his own belovedness, all he has to do is receive it. And I think that This is a beautiful story about Jesus, but again, I think it's also a really beautiful story about us and our own sort of inherent belovedness. And that means when it comes to our own belovedness, like it's nothing that we have to earn. It's nothing that we have to prove. It's nothing that we have to achieve. But when it comes to our own belovedness, it's just simply something that God extends to us as a gift and it's something that we receive. But even more than just something that we receive, it's almost like something that's being revealed within us, right? Like this is coming from the deep within us, that we are the beloved, that there's nothing that we can do to like mar that in any way or like grow in that in any way. Like this is the default operating system within us, 
that we are beloved. Um, Henry Nouwen, who's a, a hugely influential um, writer and theologian, says that, that being the beloved is the most intimate truth about what it means, or the most intimate truth of all human beings. And I got to admit, like, on my best days, maybe I get this, right? <laughs> maybe I embrace this. Um, maybe I can live from this place of being the beloved. But more often than not, it feels like there's all sorts of other competing messages and voices telling me that this isn't something that I can just receive, but that it's something that I have to earn or prove or achieve. Maybe that's something that I, I, I say or do, and there's this voice in the back of my head that says the beloved certainly wouldn't do that. Uh, or maybe I'm scrolling through Facebook and I see an advertisement and I, I begin to like get up to get this image that like I have to look or do or, or say certain things to be to have any sort of worth or value or identity in life. Or I look at other people who are doing similar things with their life and I see that they do it very differently than me and I get this sense that um, to have any sort of worth or value or identity, I have to do it like them. On my best days, like I feel like I can live from this place of belovedness, but more than not, I feel like there's these competing voices telling me that I have to earn and prove and achieve it. Now, what's interesting in this story is um, it's almost as if like Mark anticipates this reality within us, that, that we're going to begin to question this. Because after Jesus hears this voice of belovedness, we're told um, that the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Now think about the imagery that comes with the wilderness. Like it's this place of barrenness, right? Like there's not much fruit that's being grown out there. Um, it's a place of like dryness. It's a place of wandering. It's a place of desperation. It's a place where maybe we're, we're, we're inclined to grab onto anything that might give us a sign of life. And Mark tells us that while Jesus is out there, he was there for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. Now, I would assume that all sorts of images come to mind when you hear uh, the word Satan. And I would uh, guess that most of those probably aren't very helpful. So <laughs> rather than using the word Satan, uh, we're going to use the phrase the accuser because that, that seems to be the, the image that's uh, trying to be communicated here. So Jesus is out in the wilderness, out in this place of barrenness, this place of dryness, this place of, of wandering, this place of desperation. And he's met there by the accuser. And we're told that he's tempted. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what uh, he's tempted by, but from the other uh, Gospels, we know that the, the temptations that uh, the accuser brings to Jesus are these accusations that if you want to become something, if you want to have worth or value or identity, you have to prove it. Turn these rocks into bread. Throw yourself off the temple. Have the angels come and get you. If you want to be king, all you have to do is bow down and worship me, right? Like if you want to, to have any sort of worth or value or identity, you have to prove it. Now the order of events here is really interesting because Jesus hears this message of belovedness and then immediately the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, almost as if Jesus has to come face to face with these competing and lesser forms of identity that he's being uh, tempted with. That he has to peel away these layers, has to come face to face with his own demons, if you will, right? And acknowledge these accusations, these temptations to cling to these lesser forms of identity so that he can finally begin to embrace and live from this deep place of belovedness within himself. This is a journey that I feel like Jesus has to go on, and I feel like it's a journey that we ourselves, you and 
I both have to go on as well. So as you think about your life, um, where are the places where you feel like there's some sort of accusation or some sort of temptation to, to earn or prove or achieve your own worth or value or identity? Maybe there's an, an accusation or a temptation to cling to these roles that we looked at earlier, right? Like that, that if we want to have any sort of worth or value or identity in life, that we get it from being a, a certain type of partner or a certain type of parent or a certain type of employee or a certain type of uh, social justice warrior, right? That these are the things that give us worth or value or identity. But all of these things are accusations and they're temptations that are lesser and competing forms of identity than the identity that God already has given to us and wants to reveal in us as God's very own beloved. There's nothing to earn. There's nothing to prove. There's nothing to achieve. Just simply something to be received and revealed within us. Uh, Henry Nouwen, again, in reference uh, to this voice speaking the beloved over us, says that that voice has always been there. But it seems that I was much more eager to listen to other louder voices saying, prove that you are worth something. Do something relevant, spectacular or powerful. And then you will earn the love you so desire. So Jesus goes on this journey. Uh, He hears this message of the belovedness, goes out and addresses these accusations, these temptations, so that he can begin to like embrace and live from this place of deep belovedness. Now, again, this is a story about Jesus, but I think it's also a story about us. And I think uh, we see something in this story inviting us um, into some deep, beautiful truth as we think about our own worth or value or identity. And I think what we see in this story is that we're being invited into bask in our own belovedness rather than turning towards temptations. That when it comes to our own worth and value and identity, that, that we're invited to bask in our belovedness. Not to have to like earn it or prove it or achieve it, but just simply receive it and allow it to be revealed within us. Rather than turning to all of these temptations that want to tell us otherwise. But I get it. Like All of these voices are really, really loud. There's all of these messages around us telling us that this belovedness, this inherent thing within us is way too good to be true. And that we have to earn it, prove it, or achieve it in some way. It's like that moment when uh, you have a, a meeting at a really precarious time in the middle of the day, like around lunch, right? And you're not sure what to do with lunch because you've heard rumors that it's like being catered, but you're like, that, that's too good to be true. I know that business, like they're not that generous, right? And so on your way to your meeting, you stop and you get Taco Bell, right? So you order your one or two or three or four tacos or burritos, right? And you scarf them down on your way. And you walk into that meeting only to find out that it's been catered by Delhi, Ohio, right? <laughs> the, the rumor was true. It wasn't too good to be true. And yet in that moment, we doubted the goodness. And so we clung to these lesser competing forms of identity, these lesser competing forms of nourishment in our life, instead of embracing the truth that wasn't too good to be true, um, that it was all provided for us and all we had to do was receive it. We're all longing for worth and value and meaning and purpose and love in our life. And that belovedness has already been handed to us. Now there's one last interesting move uh, in the story as a whole. 
and so after Jesus receives this belovedness, after Jesus goes out and deals with his uh, temptations, we're told uh, that after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, all of this comes after the belovedness, after going out in the wilderness and dealing with the temptations. All of this comes after these previous uh, events. Meaning that after Jesus has come to grips with his own belovedness and begins to lead from this place of belovedness, that Jesus can then go out and proclaim the good news. I think the order of events here is really, really important because if Jesus doesn't come uh, to grips with his own belovedness, if his own belovedness isn't the thing that's motivating him, then this proclaiming the good news is really all about him, right? And how well he can do it and how good he can get others to follow in on the good news. And at that point, it stops being about the good news and it becomes all about his own worth and value and identity. And yet what we see is that Jesus is being motivated by his own belovedness. And because he's motivated from this place of belovedness, he can do all of these great and amazing and cosmic shaping things that he does, right? Because Jesus is being motivated from a place of belovedness, he can have like boundless compassion for people. And Jesus can have radical generosity for people. And Jesus can have this expansive sort of love that includes even his enemies because he knows that his own worth and value and identity isn't based on any of these things, but rather that it comes from a place of belovedness that God speaks over him. And so we find ourselves in the season of Lent. And I wonder if um, maybe this isn't a time for us to, to embrace and bask in our own belovedness. See, Lent is this time uh, where we talk about things like an inward journey, where we talk about reflection, where we talk about repentance. And that feels like awfully like difficult work, right? <laughs> and it's often presented in a way like maybe we have to earn or prove or achieve something by doing that. And I, I can't help but think that that's further than the truth. Um, because I think what we have in Lent is this opportunity to do this inward journey to do this reflection, to identify where we feel these accusations, these temptations that cling to lesser forms of identity and begin to repent of them, which just simply means to turn and begin to turn towards this belovedness that God offers to us and cling to it and embrace it and bask in it and begin to allow this to be the, the thing that motivates us throughout the rest of our life. Because again, we recognize that whatever we do in life will carry with it the same sort of energy that motivated us to do it in the first place. Uh, so over the last few weeks, we've talked about a, a sermon response ritual. So you see here, we have a, a glass container with rocks in it. So if you have that, I invite you to grab it. Um, the idea is that uh, each week we'll end our sermon with a, a question. And this rock will represent that, that question throughout the week. So we invite you to, to carry it with you in some way, put it next to your mirror, uh, put it next to your computer, maybe carry it in your pocket if it's a flat one like this, right? And allow it to like to work on you this week. So this week we want to ask the question, um, what sort of temptations are vying uh, for our identity as beloved? What sort of temptations are in our life that are, are competing or uh, compelling us to turn towards them rather than our own sort of belovedness that God has spoken over us.
And what if Lent was this really beautiful time of acknowledging these accusations, acknowledging this temptation, and turning from them, and beginning to embrace and bask in the belovedness that God speaks over us. So friends, my prayer for us um, at the beginning of Lent is that we, we would find ways to bask in our own belovedness, to recognize like it's not too good to be true, <laughs> but it's like the default operating system within us. And yet there's all these accusations, all of these temptations that are wanting us to, to cling to them as these lesser forms of identity. And yet we have nothing to earn, we have nothing to prove, we have nothing to achieve. All that we've been longing for has already been given to us. My friends, when God looks upon you, God says, this is my son, this is my daughter, the beloved. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for this belovedness that lies deep within each and every one of us. God, that it's nothing that we have to earn or prove or achieve. We can't lose our belovedness and we can't, well, it's, it's such a full thing that we can't even begin to like expand it in any way, right? But we can grow in our own awareness of it, God. And so I pray that your spirit would open our eyes so that we can begin to bask in that belovedness that you've given to us. And we can begin to live from this like default operating system that this can be our motivation in life. So that we can begin to follow in the way of Jesus who had boundless compassion, radical generosity, and an expansive sort of love that included even his own enemies. God, help us to bask in our belovedness. And know that you love us deeply. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.